6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 1 John, chapter 5. Verse 15, if we know that he hears us, we, and whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. We know, we know, we know. That's John. Not hope, not suspect. See, no is in the present tense. And prayer is not spiritual self-hypnosis. Prayer is the thermometer of your life, your spiritual life. Where are you in your spiritual life? How much do you pray? How do you pray? What's the quality of it? What's the frequency of it? What's the depth of it? Whew. We pray because God has commanded us to pray and because prayer is the God-appointed means for a believer to receive what God wants to give him. Oh, wow. Now the fog is lifting a little bit. We pray because God has commanded us to. That's reason enough. And because prayer is the God-appointed means for a believer to receive what God wants to give him. Interesting. See, it's a courtship, it's a dialogue, it's a participation thing. Jesus himself depended on prayer, sometimes all night. I won't ask for a show of hands of how many have spent all night on occasion in prayer. Not crying, praying. Okay. Verse 16, If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. Ooh, everybody's worried now. What's that? Well, what's, what's that? See, there are occasions where one should not pray if checked by the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 7, Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry or prayer for them, neither make intercession for me, for I will not hear thee. God speaking to Jeremiah. Jesus did the same thing. In the in intimate prayer between the Father and the Son in John 17, that's really the Lord's Prayer. What we call the Lord's Prayer is really the disciples' prayer. It was an instructional technique. The real Lord's Prayer is this intimate chapter called John 17. And it's interesting, as Jesus prays to the Father, He makes a point, I pray not for the world. Really? Interesting. All sin is hateful to God and should be hateful to the believer. That's your measure of spiritual maturity, by the way. When you hate, when you hate sin as much as God hates sin, you're starting to get, co you know, a concurrence there. But some is punishable with death. We're not talking about spiritual death here. We're talking about physical death. Nadab and Abihu, Achan in Joshua 6 and 7, Uzzah, and Ananias and Sapphira. These were, these were um, sins unto death. They were taken out of the picture physically. Does that mean they were unsaved? Not necessarily. They may have been, they may not have been. I'm not going to get into that debate. In fact, only God can resolve that anyway. But they certainly were taken out of the ballgame. Moses was. 
because he blew it at Rephidim. Some have been taken out physically because of misfeasance at the Lord's Supper. They Some sleep. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30. That may shock you. When you take the Lord's Supper, make sure you do it right. Make sure you've prepared yourself for it. Now, there are some denominations that take that very seriously. They won't let children take communion. And they also have quite a service to make sure you're prepared. Don't touch it until you're really ready. Where do they get that stuff? Is that part of the, the denominational heritage? No. It's, they're trying to respond to 1 Corinthians 11.30. Apparently, Paul tells us, some sleep because they didn't behave properly at the Lord's Supper, weren't prepared spiritually, whatever. So take that seriously. You can carry that too far too, I imagine, but at the same time, be cautious. Don't experiment. <laughs> All unrighteousness is sin, and there is, there is a sin not unto death. There are believers who are alive today, uh, uh, we, believers who are alive today have all sinned. But we haven't sinned a sin unto death, I don't think. Anyone here dead? I don't think so. We did something that was wrong. It was unrighteousness, but God didn't take us home. If He were taking home every believer that sinned, I think we'd have an empty auditorium. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. And he's talking about continuing sin here. And he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. How? Through continual prayer. Luke 22 and so on. Satan cannot touch any believer without God's permission. Boy, is there comfort in that. Most of us in this room are destined for in the coming months and years to go through some pretty dark times because the laws that have protected us in the past are now being ignored. The Constitution that gave us a certain veil of protection is, is, has frankly been abandoned. The America that you and I grew up in and take for granted is really over. There's a whole new thing going on. Uh, so it's going, to be, it's going to be a different time forthcoming. And as many of us are going to have incredible opportunities for the kingdom. And there'll be some people in this room that will probably die, be executed for the faith in Christ. Wow, what an opportunity. You know, that's easier to do than to live for Christ, by the way. Okay. But Satan can't touch you without... God's permission. What a comfort that is. Satan can't touch you without the Father's permission. That's the, one of the main primary lessons of the book of Job. And one of the characteristics of the mature Christian is the ability to overcome the evil one. Really? Yeah, we talked about that in chapter 2, if you recall. God will not allow us to be tempted above what we're able 1 Corinthians 10.13. I'm sure it'll become one of your memory verses. There is, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. What a promise that is. Put that in your collection. You know, by the way, one of the things you want to do, whether you memorize them or not, it's another thing, is you ought to collect His promises. Every time in your reading you come across a promise that's dear to you, make a card for it and make a card file. That's wonderful to page through from time to time. You don't have to, if you can memorize them, great, but at least be familiar with them. 
And we know that we are of God and the whole we know that we are of God and the whole world lieth in wickedness. There's another way of summarizing it. There are three enemies that you and I face. The world, the flesh, and the devil. It might be useful to know a little bit about, I'm going to draw a little bit uh, from our book, uh, Kingdom, Power, and Glory, because you might find this interesting. We speak of authority. There are three word, number of words for power, but the, each word has a slightly different connotation. There's a word called dunamis, and that's the, word, the Greek word from which the word dynamite comes. There's a word iskus, which is the used for power, but in a little different sense. And dunamis is the source of power. The source, it really emphasizes the source of power. The iskus is the application, the result of that power. And what lies between them is kratos, which look at it like a control knob, uh, on, off an on switch or a volume control. Uh, it, and, and so that's the control of it. Okay, The source of power is the dunamis, the, the kratos is the control of that, and the iskus is the empowerment. And it's the control that causes it to be effectuated. So it's three different terms. And these collectively are called exousia, the authority. But it has those three different parts. And that's why, as you, in the Greek, the Greek is far more precise in how it's used in the word. It, you can be using any one of these, but it's, it's the, the implementation, it, what it's actually talking about is useful to understand. Let me give you an example of that. If we have exousia, we have dunamis and rekratos. But who are our enemies? Well, we've got the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now here we're drawing on Donald Gray Barnhouse's book, which uh, impressed us as trying to make distinctions here. Uh, we have the Word of God, the cross, and the blood. And the iscus, the control of this, is the Word of God, the faith in the Word of God is how you deal with the world. That's pretty straightforward. How do you deal with the flesh? You flee it. You can't cast out the flesh. It's, in, it's co-resident in your body. You flee the temptations. And how do you, what do you do with the devil? Oh, that's different. You fight him. You have the authority. So you have faith, flight, and fight, depending on whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil. And uh, uh, we try to make some of those distinctions in our book, drawing heavily on Barnhouse and some, a number of other authors for, for practical advice. Now, our book, Kingdom, Power, and Glory, is, attempts to deal with being an overcomer. And deals, it tries to take some of these concepts and put them in practical day-to-day -day application. And the, the goal being to get a kingdom perspective, to understand it's written to someone who's saved. If you're saved, praise God. If you're not, you've got other problems, we'll deal with that. But this is people who are saved. Okay, you're, if you're saved, you're saved. We build a foundation of eternal security upon which to build. Why? Because entering heaven isn't the same as inheriting when you get there. And uh, so... There are parts of your inheritance that you can't lose, but there are parts of your inheritance that are a reward for faithfulness, for diligence, for, and, and, and perseverance. We try to deal with it. Why? Because your responsibility in the kingdom that's, going, that's coming will derive from your behavior today. Be, your behavior matters. And we have that kingdom come, the origin of evil, eternal security, Inheritance and rewards. The time. These are all studies that help support this. My wife also has a family of practical helps in the same uh, vein here. Well, let's move on here to wrap this up. The Christian life is the real life. You've heard me talk, prattle on, especially in John 2, about hyperspaces. You and I 
Our reality is the real reality, not the one that's simulated that's around us. And reality has been the theme of this letter. And John was probably writing to believers in the city of Ephesus, realize that that was given over to idols of all kinds. You remember the whole temple of Diana and all of that was in Ephesus. Merchandising, idols, was the chief industry in the, in, in the place that his readers were resident in. You think you had problems, imagine what it was like there. <laughs> the unions were in control there. Huh? Christians were under enormous pressure to conform, as you can imagine. See, the Psalms contain caustic indictments of idolatry. And in both Psalm 115.8 and also 135.18, there's an insight that I think is profound. Speaking of idolatries, as they that make them are like unto them, so is everyone that trusteth in them. What does that mean? Well, is an idol false and empty? Of course it is. Those who live for them become false and empty. Oh. Is the world harsh and unforgiving? Boy, and how? Those who live for the world become harsh and unforgiving. Those who live for Christ, ooh, become like Him? As Hamlet might say, devoutly to be wished, huh? We know the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true, and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. We have the real thing. Jesus is the true God. We know Him. We are in Him. Jesus is the true light, we learned. He's the true bread. He's the true door. He's the true vine. He's truth Himself. These are all extracts, of course, not just from the epistle, but also from emphasized in His gospel. This may be one of the reasons that uh, I know Hal Lindsey uh, is, believes that the gospel was written after Patmos. We always presume it was written early because we read it so early in the Bible. No, no, no. He may have had the benefit of the insights of Patmos when he wrote his gospel. Anyway, most unsaved people live in an atmosphere of pretense and sham. I won't ask for a show of hands. How many of you noticed that? Most unsaved people live in an atmosphere of pretense and sham. What upsets us, we find some Christians that way too, but that's another subject. We live in an atmosphere of reality, or should. We've been given spiritual discernment to know the true from the false, but the unsaved do not have this understanding. You need to realize that the unsaved are in bondage to sin. The unsaved do not have the discernments that you may take for granted having read your Bible. Christians not only choose between good and the bad, they choose between the true and the false. Those are two different things. But then he writes that, little children, there's that in term of endearment, keep yourselves from idols. Wow. That's been tough for me. That's been very tough for me. I spent 30 years in the strategic arena. I grew up with a deep love for this country. I made a career of it quite a while, even after my service involvements. I was chairman and CEO of four different publicly traded defense contractors, 30 years in the strategic arena. And I now look back and begin to realize that what I used to regard as patriotism may be an obsolete form of idol worship. 
See, we, we, stood, we stood for liberty, freedom, some things that are worth dying for. We didn't try to impose our political theories on other countries by force. John's writings, just to wrap it up, John's gospel was the past, in a sense, that dealt with salvation, the whole narrative of all that. John's letters were the present, sanctification, and John's, our future is his glorious appearing revelation. Isn't it? John, you can, you can parse his, his three packages, uh, past, present, and future, uh, if you like. First John has been called the sanctum sanctorum of the New Testament. Some people think it's the, it's the most intimate passages in the entire New Testament. It takes the child of God into the fellowship of the Father's home. This isn't a church epistle. It's a family room that we're dealing with here. And uh, Paul's epistles and the other epistles are church epistles. This is a family epistle. And many people feel it's more important to the individual believer than all the other stuff put together. Life is real. It's a battleground, not a playground. If a person's wrong about Jesus Christ, he's wrong about God. And if he's wrong about God, he's wrong about everything else. First epistle, we had seven contrasts. Remember, truth versus error. Light versus darkness in chapter 1. The Father versus the world in chapter 2. Christ versus the Antichrist in chapter 2. Good works versus evil works. Holy Spirit versus error. Love versus pious presence. Seven contrasts. The God-born, the barren, if you will, and others. There were seven tests. Tests of profession, test of desire, test of doctrine, test of conduct, test of discernment, test of motive, and test of the new birth, building up throughout this epistle. We tried to keep, your, keep this in focus as we went. All the way through this epistle, we see what's called the sevenfold or heptatic structure. Seven traits of being born again, we found. Seven reasons why this epistle was written. We got the seventh one tonight in this, in this lesson. Seven tests of the Christian genuineness. Seven tests of honesty and reality. And there are also, not seven, but six liars. <laughs> liars are never complete, right? Um, so, if we say, and we don't have to go through each one of these, I think. They were, we encountered them as we went, these six liars. And, uh, the, the, the fifth of uh, the sixth of the sixth is he that believeth on the Son of God hath witness himself. He that believeth not God hath made God a liar. The sixth of six lies within the structure of the epistle. And the last thing we just wrap it up here on the review of the Christian birthmarks. You're supposed to be born again. If you're born again, where's your what are your birthmarks? Huh? Well, everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him, he tells us in first John two. In third chapter, he says, Whosoever is born of God doth not practice sin. Do you practice sin? Are you habitually addicted to something you haven't dealt with? Well, you better deal with that. Because you can. You won't be happy until you do. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. We found out in chapter 3. Beloved, let us, not, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth God is born of God and knoweth God. And then uh, finally, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. Are you an overcomer or are you overtaken? Those are Christ's own uh, divisions. Okay. So before you leave, what is your action plan? You spent some evenings here. We've gone through an epistle. Hopefully we've learned some things, enjoyed some things. If it hasn't changed your priorities, you wasted your time probably. What is God calling you to do? That's the greatest experience. 
How many of you are saved? Can I see your show of hands? Great. What are you doing with it? What have you done with it? Why did God save you? He had a purpose in doing that. A generalized purpose to glorify himself, of course, to glorify his son. But he also had a specific purpose for every one of us. And the great adventure in life is to discover what that specific calling is. And then I encourage you to roll up your sleeves and get at it because the time's getting short. Every one of us in this room are incomplete in our sanctification. Every one of us are a work in progress. Some of us have one experience repeated ten times rather than having ten experiences, huh? What you need to do, we all need to do, me included, has to ra- we have to raise the bar on our personal walk. And that will include a lot of things, more prayer, I'm sure, and committing to a systematic study of the Bible. Well, I read it every day. That's devotional reading. I take that for granted. No, no, no. I'm talking about a serious, in-depth, verse-by-verse, cover-to-cover study that's a lifetime program. The best way to do that is in a small group. Some of us can do it alone. Not nearly as effective as you can in a small group. A group small enough that you can ask questions without embarrassment, small enough that you hold each other accountable. That's the best way. That group does not have to be face-to-face. You can do it on the Internet with great effect. And you can get college credit by doing it that way. But whatever you try to do, respond to his calling now. Now, I do want everyone that's in this the thing to know that there is a think tank you can be part of called the Coin Institute. It's a worldwide, lifetime fellowship. We presently have members in 40 countries, and uh, it's non-denominational, but very fundamental. It is a supplement, not a replacement for a local church. You take your courses on your own clock. You don't have to be at a certain place at a certain time. It will take two, three hours a week to complete a course. But those two or three hours can be any time during the week you happen to pry free before. It's a volunteer think tank. Because your interaction with it is going to increase the, re- the resources for everyone else. And the, the, the membership commonwealth is committed to help you achieve whatever you believe your personal calling is. As you discover what you think God has called you to do, we will facilitate your preparation for that. And we represent two organizations, Coining House, the publisher you're probably familiar with. That's probably where you got this study. khouse.org is the website. But there's another institute you want to be aware of. That's called the Institute, the Coining Institute. Different website, studycenter.com. And I apologize to our European friends that we misspell center. We spell a C-E-N-T-E-R the American way. I apologize for that. And the main thing that I want to get across that you want you to realize there are three legs on that stool, three arms, three avenues of study. We call it the Brian Iskar and Koinos. The Brian is, the, is motivated by Acts 17.11. It's been our trademark for 30 years or more, in which Luke tells you don't believe anything Chuck Mister tells you or any other radio or TV guy, but receive the Word of God with openness of mind. Ah, and search the Scriptures daily to prove where those things be so. That's the verse-by-verse study of the Bible. That's the primary agenda of the Institute. But what makes us different than a Bible college or a Bible Institute is the second leg, which we call, for lack of another word, the Issachar leg, which is motivated by First Chronicles 12.32. The sons of Issachar who understood the times and knew what their country had to do. That's a study of prophecy. That's a study of stewardship. The tools and resources there 
are almost antithetical to the tools and resources of the Berean study. In the Berean study, you know it's true, the challenge is to, 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 under, to understand it. The Issachar Avenue, you're, using, you're leaning on material you know is biased. That's, that's deceptive. News clips, intelligence reports, whatever. What's going on in the world today? And what does that mean? And it's putting those side by side where we can begin to, begin to make those re references. And one of the resources that you want to be aware of, I'll come to that in a minute, koinonos is the third. That's the doing, the practical side. Exodus 20, verse 7, the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. We argue it has nothing to do with vocabulary or swearing. It has to do with ambassadorship. If you're going to take the name of the king, you better be prepared to represent him competently and faithfully. That's the doing part. That's what we're all about. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. One of the things that we usually talk about, having finished a chapter, is where we go next. That's up to you. That's up to you. What book do you go to from here? Anyone the Holy Spirit leads you to. You can't miss. But do pick a book, go at it verse by verse from here for your next step, whatever that is. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to tutor us, to guide us, to lead us. We do pray, Father, that you would reignite in each of us a new appetite, a new hunger, a new confidence in your word that we each might continue to grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our coming King, that we might be more effective stewards of the time that remains. We would pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate precisely what it is you'd have of each of us in the days that remain. As we commit ourselves into your hands, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, when we begin a new series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.